This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, and I believe this is podcast number seven. Uh, and with me is Guy Zimmerman in Los Angeles, and uh, I am speaking from uh, Norway, as usual. So, hey, Guy. Hey, John. How are you? Um, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, I hear a twenty-one of the global lockdown. Yeah, uh, it's it, it's in, yeah it, it 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 it's impossible to um it's impossible to not talk about that, isn't it? I mean, on some level, wherever we're going with this, and we're talking a bit about disenchantment and theater and that Deleuze piece that we talked about, but but. It's just all happening, playing out amid this increasingly surreal um, global situation. And, and uh, it will certainly color everything we say, I think, in a sense. But, um, but, but it's, also, it's also a rabbit hole. I don't want to go down right this second. But, um, uh, it, you know, just to kind of segue. Well, go ahead. Let me let you. No, finish. no, go, please. No, just that, you know, the plague, I mean, you know, uh, you know, is a, you know, plays a prominent role in sort of the history of tragic drama. You know, it's always, it's always linked in some way to uh, the figure of the tyrant. And, uh, you know, I think that, I mean, that's very much in play, I think now is sort of the nature of hegemony and domination with respect to, you know, these, these, you know, this underlying connectivity that the, the virus travels through, which is the human connectivity, you know, the biological mm -hmm. connectivity. Well, it, it's, uh, I, I don't know. It's, all, it just, it, it's part of a conceptual, you know, uh, body that includes tragic drama from my point of view. Right. No, but it does. And, and the, the, the other side of, of this phenomenon, the, Corona event uh, is the the way in which people have responded to it. I mean, had you told me that people would willingly, um, enthusiastically at times, um, shut themselves in under house arrest globally um, with so little, um, you know, social unrest accompanying it. Uh, I would have said you're nuts. That that wouldn't be possible. Uh, but but you know here we are. And the strange thing is that you know I'm in Norway, which is absolutely shut down. Um, and they're they're talking about maybe opening the schools or starting to in in transition back to opening the schools um, next week after Easter. And Easter is a big thing here. Very big holiday in Norway, but right next door is Sweden that has taken very little in the way of, um, you know, governmental action, and and they're they're being stigmatized now. I mean, people, you know, the results are 
are open, you know, as I, it's unsure if they're, they're doing nothing as good or bad or about the same. And seems like it's probably going to all end up about the same as, as the people that took drastic, the countries that took drastic action, but, but they are being scapegoated on some level. You know, how dare you, you're jeopardizing the, you know, the health of the planet and all of these absurd things. Um, and of course, Belarus, uh, didn't take any measures whatsoever. And so far, I believe they only have four deaths. So yeah, it's, it's very strange. And it, it, um, the willingness of people to follow instructions speaks to something that I think we can talk about a little bit in terms of audiences and stuff too. And, 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 um, it was, I'm going to be doing a podcast with, with Molly Klein and, and Michael Petrucelli, ostensibly on the topic of disenchantment as, as Adorno saw it. And, you know, that harkens back to the, the Kantian subject and transcendental subject and on and on and identity and so forth. But we're seeing with this, this, uh, this populist take the United States in, where people are simply not objecting to a massive, a massive lockdown enforced by, you know, visible threats of, of police power. And um, you, you kind of wonder what, how, what is the narrative for this with people? Is it, do they feel they're in a movie? Is have they just been trained by, um, you know, Hollywood zombie films or something. I was talking to a screenwriter the other day, a friend of a friend, and but I was in touch with him and he said, yeah, the zombie films were just to make people to normalize the idea that people would be shooting staggering, starving, homeless people. And I thought, yeah, well, that's another, another good interpretation of, of zombie films. But, um, but yeah, I, I, those two things, I mean, there is a, there is a sort of, larger tragic narrative being played out and and it's um you know the actors the, the characters um are 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 a peculiar group of of um not very heroic figures in in this and and that's one aspect but but the other is that that we're seeing you know, this is the digital age, and we're seeing this the, the the strange way in which, you know, the 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 attention economy, the algorithmically trained populace is responding to a to a mass event, and and I think that's what's what's most fascinating to me. Um, you know, people maybe people are not feeling particularly um, uncomfortable being housebound because they still have their you know, smartphones. I don't know. I'm sure that that's true. Yeah. And I, I think that, I mean, in some ways, I think retrospectively, we'll look back or people will look back and say, you know, the arrival of social media, in a sense, and, and the sort of identity apparatus of, uh, of social media is analogous to the arrival of coinage, you know, in, in, in sort of the seventh century BC or whatever, in terms of you know the very rapid transformation of all social relations, 
and the sort yeah. of uh, the way in which the you know this sort of empty individualism where uh you know which is all about curating yourself curating your identity establishing your profile is um you know becomes you know fit, fills in for uh you know all sorts of social relations right right and 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 we can, and, and suddenly you know in a sense that's why the figure of the tyrant suddenly becomes because that you know the, the figure of the tyrant was also associated directly with the arrival of coinage and the right. invisible and now, power the, the systemic power that coinage suddenly brought into the world and um you know so now we see you know the return of the tyrant as a figure you know, it's it's uh, it's really quite remarkable. I think. Well, and and because I think that's astute, and and um, we touched on it even in the first podcast, and I think it's it's pertinent to to uh, reflect upon. But we're also seeing the elimination of of paper money. You know, I think that's almost inevitable now. Um, and the truth is, well, the like, thing about well, just in in Europe in general, nobody uses coins anymore. I mean, you sometimes use paper money, but maybe ten percent of the time that you have a transaction, you use paper money. Almost nobody has coins anymore. Um, no, I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, coin, it's a, you know, it's largely a credit economy now. When you when you you don't even use coins for a parking meter. You know, you put your credit card. Right. In. Yeah. But no. it, but you know, coin it. You know, coinage just stands in for this abstracting you know the, the quality of abstract value right where yeah. i mean this is very marxist in the sense that you know their coinage established for everybody gave everybody a direct experience of value as something that floats above the material world in a separate realm right and this right. is really what this is really in a sense what deleuze is aiming at i think you know and i loved in the in the essay i love the uh, the quote from uh from nietzsche about uh Plato as an as an artist, you know, who imagines this ideal realm for artistic and aesthetic purposes, but really under the spell of the coin, right? I mean, really under the sense of like how wonderful now we can we can leave this this fallen world and exist in this ideal realm. Well, that, that was free and immortal. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, you know, it's yeah. very seductive. It's well, very and seductive. that was, I mean one of Adorno's takes on, on in, and he, it was in Dialectic of Enlightenment, but it runs through all his work, was that um, the mimetic, the immediate engagement with, with the world, with the natural world, with objects um, in the world uh, was empathic and absorptive. And, um, and when people began to conceptualize that and that came with the alphabet and text but it was accelerated through the various capitalism was one of the accelerators various forms of government and social organization and that 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 sort of instrumental thinking what came to be called instrumental thinking was um 
abstract before the fact that it was not just classificatory and 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 organizational but it it distanced and um uh alienated people from the natural world but people came to uh to not experience huge chunks of of the sensory input they got because it didn't fit the conceptual framework they were building before this engagement and that that led ultimately to you know logical positivism and 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 um, i mean you know you you talk about marcuse in the same vein you know it's very much the same yeah. the same body of thought right the eros yeah. and civilization you know the um yeah and it's the you know it's symbolic symbolic technologies you know which ultimately are you know sort of products of of the human mind it's almost as if we this capacity in terms of symbolic technologies and now we are completely dominated by them right and so it, it's just a very interesting thing because it's as if you know it's as if we're under a spell you know yeah the, well the, but, but, the but spell of abstraction yeah and and it uh, is it is um adorno had another notion i mean he wasn't the only one that he called second nature which was sort of con the the world is constructed this is the, the sort of rudimentary explanation because it's a very simplified explanation but it was the world that the the pre-experiential concept created um, to replace actual nature. It was like the second nature. Um, and all those philosophers from the early 20th century that, that went through World War II and um, National Socialism and, and the absolute carnage in Hiroshima, they all came away from it um, feeling extraordinarily disillusioned and, and pessimistic because they saw no way back from um, the, the cognitive imprisonment of, of what we're talking about, this, this, this um, instrumental, now it's digital, see, and now it's even worse. Second nature has been usurped or subsumed somehow by, by digital screen nature. And it's actually one of the things that I think Molly and I will probably talk about, and, and but you and I have too at different times, is the aesthetics of film. I mean, you look at CGI. CGI is in some way the anti-mimetic imagery. It is it's very interesting. It is testament. You know, yeah. it's, it's very interesting because it, it takes me right back into theater, which is so so interesting as a kind of um, antidote to a lot of this because the 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 logic gate which is the the essence of the digital you know is it on or off two positions on or off and and it's you know it's something that uh you know the the sort of the spatial apparatus which centered around you know the door in the palace in the skene door and the you know the the tragic hero is taken through the 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 skene door and slaughtered right and then his body this is Agamemnon is, is the body is then displayed and uh, you know of course these tragic dramas took place on the site where all day long they've been slaughtering various 
livestock to as offerings to the to the deities, right? right. But the point is that this and this arrived all at the same time, right after uh, the the you know the civil war in Athens. The the interesting thing spatially about the skene on the Greek stage is that it created a present absence, which was off stage. Right. And through the doors is this present absence where where this thing happens, this, you know the sacrifice happens. The point is that it's it's explicitly a space that undermines binary values Absolutely. because it's both present and absent. Yeah. And so for me, the doors of the skene are an anti-logic gate from the beginning. Did that come through? John? Yeah, yeah, it's you're coming in and out a little bit, but I'm going to hold a beat and then continue. Um, yeah, no, but I'm, I think I'm just I th saying that thing essentially that the theater space, this theater space, is a present absent space. It's an anti-logic space. Absolutely. And from the beginning, it was opposed to financialized values or monetized values. Well, yeah, I mean that that was um, I think one of the things that, um, you know, you look at theater today, they work very hard to provide something to sell because real theater kind of has nothing to sell. Um, in a sense, it really does resist commodification. But the offstage thing, which, you know, and I have talked about this for a long time, but I, I really think your take is, is, is quite insightful. I mean, that's brilliant. Um, because I always said the offstage was the unconscious and onstage was the conscious and that, that plays the real generative, the engine for uh, the, what drove the play forward was always happening offstage. And, and so I think, I think what you're saying is quite true. And it's funny because Molly did an interview with me years ago talking about my own work and talked about posited the idea that perhaps there was a portal that changed that dynamic that sometimes the unconscious was on stage and and the conscious was and i thought well that's that's really interesting and 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 quite possible indeed but the greeks are the perfect you know exemplars for um for for this kind of theorizing and and of course you know, cinema, it is the eye of the apparatus. Cinema provides no offstage. And uh, I think, and I'm tr trying to not digress too much here, but I think you will find in um, the very most inspired film directors an intuitive understanding that Yes, there's no offstage, but I have to point the camera toward where that isn't, you know? I mean, you look at Scorsese's famous for pans onto nothing and he holds on it and then pans back. But, but I mean, I can pick a dozen other directors that- Oh, I think it's very, um, I think it's very true. That, you know, I that think do it's, that. It's the tension of the frame, you know? Is a director, is a film director sensitive to the tension uh, on the frame and the pressure of what is unseen on what is seen, right? Uh, and and right. I think it's right. it is very right. much the same the same dynamic. It's just that in theater, it's 
in theater, it's somehow amplified, at least, at least in the theater that you and I, I think, care about, which is, I would submit, is really, you know, post-Beckettian theater, or theater that has one foot in what Beckett was interested in, which was a kind of retooling of the tragic for a, you know, post-war world. You know, and it's very interesting to me that he moved from the novel to theater and, and what the pressure was that moved him so decisively that way. Well, you know, that, um, you know the, 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 the film question is always very interesting to me. Um, and I'm almost finished a blog post. So those of you listening to this podcast can go to my blog and read them the blog post and i was talking about because i was sat with my twins the other day watching snow white and the seven dwarfs the 1937 color animated feature from walt disney 1937 and it's remarkable now one can say a lot of things about disney who was a, a you know an arch reactionary right-wing racist but but the germane thing was that that film um was was prophesying the crane shots you would see 15 years later, 20 years later in with the advent of color film. It, it, color plays a big role in this, but it was prophetically um, um, imagining Manelli crane shots. I mean, they're, they're extraordinarily cinematic um, cartoons, those, you know, Bambi, Dumbo, Fantasia, Pinocchio, all of them. Um, but Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in particular, because it was so overdrawn, I mean, you know, Disney overworked his, his artists and, and didn't pay them and all, you know, he was a hateful man. But, but he imagined some cinematic future. It's a very strange thing. And this takes me into something else. And I don't want to get into that right now with you because I want to get back to the Deleuze question. But it also raises this issues that Jonathan Beller talks about in his book, his most recent book about photography and the way in which it inspires the racialism of, of the colonial era, that, that, that it, it created um, an, an expression, a representation of racism in a sense. And you see in Disney, I mean, I, I took a couple of photos, one from The Sound of Music, which is vaguely bulkish, you know, hills of Austria, and compared it to um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Um, and the compositions are, are very similar in a certain kind of way. And, and they, they contain, it is as if, you know, if Beller talks about the unconscious as a film strip, you know, that we can't separate our, our own memories from memories of films that we've seen. But it's also almost working in the reverse order. We are dreaming, um, um, it, 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 it's not just our unconscious that is adulterated, it is our dreams. We are dreaming the propaganda that um, maybe hasn't even arrived yet. I mean, seven, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is a precursor to um, 
you know, to Lenny Reifenstahl or something. And certainly to those big musicals. Well, I, think South, that's, I think that's... Yeah. South Pacific, well, Oklahoma, all of those. Yeah, yeah which, which were colonial. Well, I think, I think right. I mean, it's very... It's very interesting because it's, I mean, Disney was undeniably, you know, among other things, other terrible things, he was kind of a genius of some kind, you know, and he employed very, very sophisticated artists to do what he did. But if you look at the basic design of Mickey Mouse, right, graphically, it's a kind of spell. It's mm -hmm. a visual spell. It, 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 it makes you just a little bit happy. And people are very, very loyal to something that makes them a little bit happy. And they're willing to give it a tremendous amount of, um, you know, I mean, they reward that. And he made a sort of a, a, a big business out of creating, I mean, you know, all of those, all of his frames are designed one way or another to make you feel a little lift. And if he brings you down, it's only to bring you further up. And so it's, an, it's a kind of a spell that rides on, you know, basic human visual cues and responses, right? And yeah, it's and in I, the service of, of capital, I mean, for sure. Well, absolutely. And, but even more, I was thinking about this idea that a prophetic dream, in a sense, maybe even collectively, that those, those Disney cartoons were exactly reimagined by Minnelli and Cirque and Stanley Donan. I mean, those crane shots, Sound of Music, Robert Wise, these exaggerated um, kitsch grandeur that is invested in, you know, a trite melodrama. And, but one that echoes a Volkish Aryan, you know, propaganda code that was employed by the Nazis. And then later you come to television and an adulterated adaptation of Man in the High Castle by Philip K. Dick. And the ad campaign for a while, they pulled it, included um, plastering New York subways with swastikas and flags and images from the TV show that was, of course, a, a you know, Philip K. Dick, a fantasy that it had the Nazis won the war, this is what we'd have. Um, and they pulled them for probably a whole variety of obvious reasons. But there's a, there, there's a continuum there. There's some kind of link that oh, um, sure. we are traveling you know, across time and space right. here, you know. I mean, it's the spell, right? In that case, it's the spell of belonging, right? And the idea of belonging it, within the context of extreme alienation, which becomes like irresistibly attractive, but you deliver both at once. You know, you deliver the alienation and the spell of belonging and you get to a Trump rally. I mean, don't you? I mean, isn't that- <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I think, but I think, I think absolutely. And you get to a national, you know, the football league uh, halftime show too, but you get to the Super Bowl. But, but um, it is even perhaps more these codes bleed into, I mean, it's the gold curtains that Trump put in the Oval Office are in <laughs> some way, some way the same kind of bad taste that the provincial boy from Missouri, Walt Disney, 
um, put in these cartoons, Snow White's a perfect example, where he was trying desperately in a sense, I mean, and, and very, he was very soppy about it, but desperately to imbue these projects with a kind of um, grandeur and prestige and desire for them to, to be taken seriously in some way. Um, and, and look, they were, you know, and, and um, so yeah, in terms of the spell that, that you postulate, I mean, I think absolutely that's true, but I think that spell um, takes the form, I mean, I think these, these codes and, and the residual, you know, the surplus unconscious uh, that we have that spills all over the place, you know, you can make these connect. I mean, they sound far-fetched in some way, but but um, but they're not. I mean, I think the fascist order Mussolini is reproduced in Trump, obviously. And but I watched a video uh, of uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez with the sound off, and she was making this <laughs> what passes for impassioned speech to somebody. Um, some legislative body, and she looked like Hitler. I mean, she absolutely looked like Hitler. I mean, it was the same kind of. So we have this this this, this authoritarian style code that gets borrowed all over the place, and it finds expression in gold curtains. It finds expression in um, you know bodybuilders that exaggerated body that serves as a certain kind of armor. We find the exaggeration in um, the way certain speeches are delivered. We find it in televangelists. We, you know, we could go to, we could make a laundry list of the ways in which this stuff has traveled. And to make a clumsy segue back to where we began, um, that stuff that, um, you know, is the product of, of, of this disenchanted society and a culture that has embraced its own domination, um, it travels like the coronavirus travels. I mean, it is, it, it is this same unseen pathogen that, you know, this is Bill Burroughs and word virus, isn't it? Um, but uh, no, but it, I think, it's, uh, right. I mean, no, no, I, you go, go. Well, well, I just, you know, what you're talking about, too, you'd have to talk about the board, right? You'd have to talk about the society of spectacle. I mean, that's really, you know, Disney Disney was uh, one of the innovators of the society of the spectacle, I mean, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And, you know, and it, it really is a certain kind of, you know, I mean, I think just to touch back on the essay, it's really about this issue of representation, right? And, and you know, is... Um, you know, our sort of devotion to the representation as real. Uh, um, yeah. And, 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 and what it means, you know, what it can mean to, to be, you know, what, where does the non-representational come from? Where exactly does it come from? Uh, you know, what is it to, I mean, I, I always feel like in the theater, the theater that, you know, like your plays, the plays that we do are all about undermining the domination of the representation through uh, right. by by putting you know by putting it up but also undermining its presuppositions in a way. well that would be yeah and but i think this is a, 
yeah, and and I think this is exactly what Adorno was saying in a sense. I mean, Kant said, you know, he liked the word genius, um, which which you know everybody hates rightly, but he said the genius has the ability to create works that to which no rules apply. That was his definition. And um, and in a sense that, you know, if you remove genius from it, Adorno would say, um, that's quite right. That's what autonomous art is. That was almost his definition of autonomous art um, in which you stop operating from under the weight of one of these paradigms and there are paradigms within paradigms within paradigms within paradigms, right? Um, uh, if you stop just doing that, you are almost going to make something worthy of, of being thought about just by virtue of, of stepping outside that because we are so extraordinarily dependent on we, the audience, the populace, so extraordinarily dependent on the familiarity of these templates. Um, and it, you know, it comes down to things, I mean, we've talked about this, but it comes down to things like color coding. Oh, this is color coded green, so it must be scary and eerie. This is color coded, you know, orange, so it's, you know, a, a romantic comedy and on and on. And people have internalized all these cues. They recognize all these cues. People are very sophisticated at, at digesting this, um, this, you know, meaningless banalities that, that mm -hmm. entertainments that are, that are fed to them 24-7. So now we look at this coronavirus, and I think it's safe to say that, that people are reading the event like they, they scan the information the way they, they watch science fiction movies. I'm pretty convinced of this. And, um, and I don't think people would be so willingly um, shutting themselves in if there weren't um, a certain enjoyment um, attached to it. I mean, I, I can't shake the feeling that people are enjoying this because I think there's something that feels like a private screening of my own science fiction movie or something. Um, that, that, there will be cracks in that facade, you know, in, in that experience. And, and then we'll see what, what really ugly shit bubbles to the surface. But, um, at the moment, um, it, it, it's a, it's a curious, curiously quiet and voyeuristic public that, um, that is accepting, you know, these really draconian suspensions of due process and, and, and democracy. Uh, so we'll see where that goes. But um, I did want to talk a little bit about that Deleuze essay on Deleuze um, by this Italian woman philosopher. Not that it's a profound essay, but I think it was interesting because it was about Deleuze's ideas on theater. Um, and so if you want to comment on that at all, uh, 
maybe we can. Well, I, you know, I quite like the essay in the sense, and I also, you know, I probably like Deleuze more than you, I don't know, but I, um, you know, I always find, I, I always find Deleuze intriguing for these reasons, because in some ways he's, you know, going back to, uh, you know, the, 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 or, well, just like everybody does really, but he's going back in a new way to undermine Aristotle and Plato who, un, you know, uh, at the origins of sort of Western thought and some of the basic presuppositions. I mean, in a way that Adorno is also doing, but with a different view. And in a sense, you know, his definition of, of philosophy is, um, you know, as a create, essentially a creative discipline, right? Where, you know, the philosopher creates concepts and the concepts then work on their world. And in terms of Deleuze, the way part of, part of what I like is his, you know, his concept of the virtual. And as, you know, uh, difference coming before identity in a sense. Right. And those, I mean, we could talk a lot about what that means and what it means for theater. But, you know, one way to look at it is to look at the issue of capacities, you know, where he says, you know, a knife has a capacity to cut. That capacity is real even when it's not being actualized. Even when the knife is in the drawer, that capacity is real. It's just not actual. And, right. so, and so the real includes both the virtual and the actual. And for, you know, the, the interesting thing is to say to John or to anyone and say, well, you know, what is it, what are your capacities that aren't being actualized right now by your circumstances in the world? Well, those capacities are real also. And it becomes like a source for, you know, it's an invitation to explore new social arrangements that are real, they're just not actual. You know, right. as opposed to the spell of, of, you know, of there's only one way that we can possibly exist, which is, uh, you know, defined by neoliberal capitalism. Right. There's only, you know, right. that Margaret Thatcher, there is no alternative kind of thing. So right. and, I mean, this and, is where Deleuze, who always identified as communist, you know, he was like, I'm, you know, I'm essentially a Marxist. Um, but it's it's a certain it's a kind of uh, revised Marxism. Well, I think that uh, no, I don't, anyway. So I'm a big fan of. Yeah, I don't I don't dislike Deleuze. I don't somehow respond to him quite the way I do certain others. But I thought this essay was interesting because I thought um, it was he had you know unique and interesting and not insignificant things to say about theater. Um, but one thing that struck me was uh, when he talked about repetition, and I thought that he was wrong about that, or it was a very incomplete observation, because I think that, that, that um, you know, repetition is a huge factor in, I mean, and I'm, I'm you know, much more of a Freudian than most people, but I think that that the way in which repetition is part of the process, the mimetic process, this um, this engagement that with whether it's theater and it's very pronounced in theater. And again, this is one of the problems with cinema. The, the constant rehearsal, the 
memorizing of lines over and over and over and over the rehearsal where you do the same scene over and over and over and over. Um, and, but, and anybody who is involved in theater knows that actually that's an incredibly pleasurable part of the whole experience, right? I love, I love doing the same scene 47 times. I mean, because you, you learn something each time and, um, yeah, it's always different. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. always, it's always by definition did, different. Yeah, what did Godard say? It's all the same, just a little bit different. Um, it, but but that repetition is also a significant part of not just the play learning, you know, to get rehearsing the play. It's not just rehearsal. It's, it's like... Um, a self-analysis for everybody involved in a sense. You, you, you can't, it's why, you know, everybody involved in, you know, equity waiver and, and play situations, theater situations, which we are under-rehearsed and that's been most of my career probably, is because you know that whatever you're doing would be much better with much more rehearsal there's no such thing as too much rehearsal. Um, and that was, you know, Cantor and Grotowski and, and Absolutely. that came out of Poland understood that, Absolutely. you know, yeah. ac acutely that this was, this was part of their, um, their position of dissent, you know, was, was they, their protest, their resistance was, was, was linked, directly and, and um, foundationally in, in the way, you know, they rehearse plays for years, of course. <laughs> yeah. um, but that was, I understand that completely. And, and because the play is, is the product of this self-analysis on some level that we are all on the couch when we're doing theater. And that's a glib way to put it, because there's something deeper. There's something that is more oh, akin very, to the spell yeah. you're talking about and and um, right. more akin to, I mean, it's, I don't know. Go ahead. Well, no, it's, I mean, I was thinking of Grotowski too, and I like that she brought in Grotowski in the context of Deleuze because, you know, there's the deadly theater, what Peter Brook calls the deadly theater, which is 90% of theater, which is all about, you know, representation, right? And then there's this other tradition that's all about, you know, that recognizes that representation is this fundamental, you know, uh, part of the apparatus of domination. That, and so you invoke it in order to dismantle it because that's where you encounter pure presence right and so you know the the you know the purpose of that Grotowskian rehearsal and i've seen those shows too and they're absolutely remarkable where somebody has rehearsed macbeth for a year and they're performing it and it's the the purpose of doing that is because it is so vividly new every time yes. because yes. of the repetition and you know it is commensurate with the moment Right, because of the repetition. Yes, uh, and so, but go ahead. And it's pointing, and when it is that commensurate with the moment, it's pointing toward where the artist wants you to look. Right, as you once used to say, I think quoting Wittgenstein, you know, all you can do is construct an arrow with, with which to point toward what's real. 
Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it, Grotowski very much sort of takes that uh, into account. You know, one of the things about the unconscious for me, and this is one of the places that, you know, we'd have to talk for a long time about Deleuze, but, you know, the Deleuzean unconscious comes through, not so much through Freud, but through Jeanette and then Bergson and Jung, right? And it's a kind of a different, it's a differential unconscious rather than a representational unconscious. And that's a very interesting difference, right? And uh, yes, it comes from well, Nietzsche. It comes from Nietzsche. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, you know, when people talk about... And it's, I think, a little I mean, bit more... One of the to really me, it's bad... A more, yeah. Well, no, one of the bad readers of, of Adorno is, is Habermas. And, and especially because he doesn't understand mimesis. Um, because mimesis begins with imitation, but it doesn't stop there. And um, it is not, we're not speaking, Adorno wasn't speaking, about simply representation. It goes much further than that. And that's often an extraordinarily dense and difficult part of Adorno to grasp, but it's, but it's really important. So when you say that that repetition brings you to the, the presence of the moment. I mean, it, that repetition is the, the, um, is the, is the felt, it is by that process that, that the meaning of the play separate from, you know, the punchline or plot or anything else is revealed. And, and, you know, you're almost doing an end around representation at that point, but um, it's, I'm trying to think how I want to say, because it's very difficult to, to, to articulate what that is, but, but um, without that, and this is one of the problems with film, um, without that long process, uh, you have um, actors essentially talking to an apparatus or talking to themselves. And there have been certain films. I don't know, you know, David Lean spent, what, a year and a half in the desert shooting Lawrence of Arabia. Now, it doesn't matter what you think of David Lean as a director, but part of what's remarkable in Peter O'Toole's performance is that he was that character for so long. It was like a long run of a stage play. And you see it on screens. One of the very few times it, that sort of thing actually becomes apparent on screen. But in film, no matter what, no matter whether you're Bresson or Ozu or, or Mizuguchi or John Ford, um, there is a point at which you were at the mercy of, of, of the apparatus, the camera, the eye of the camera, and where the camera is <laughs> pointing to, is, is where you're pointing. Yeah, what? I, I have to think about Kubrick here too, because of course Kubrick was famous for, you know, these, you know, excruciating 500 takes. Right. And what, you know, what I always think, there's also this history in Kubrick of he's a sort of a career ending director. You know, there's this <laughs> long list of, of actors who, where Kubrick kind of extract, you know, from Keir DeLay to uh, what's his name in, in Clockwork Orange to, you know, where Kubrick essentially extracted their being 
Yes. Well, like this I always think that Shining was Jack Nicholson's final performance, where where his you know yeah. the, the actor's being is extracted by Kubrick. Oh, no, that's beautiful. Never to return. That's very good. <laughs> you know. And that happened with with Dreyer and and Falconetti in in the Trial of Joan of Arc, um, way back. Um, and it's interesting because I. I'm just sort of jumping around here. I, I watched Killing Him the Sacred Deer the other night for the second time. And it, the yeah. first time I, I didn't yeah. like it. Um, and the second time I did like it. And, yeah, I like it too. Yeah. And, and, but it reminded me of Dreyer. It really yeah. is, um, yeah. you know, uh, like almost every Dreyer film, in a sense, it's it's. Uh, what's the one? What's the one with the unpronounceable name? Erd, the um, you know the one about the man back to life. You know who I'm talking about? Yes, yes. Uh, the one that nobody uh, knows how to the pronounce film. because it's a scandal. yeah, <laughs> including me or death. Uh, and then my wife kicks me when I say that. Um, it it or or I don't know how you pronounce it. Yeah, or, uh, but yeah. it's a yes, it's it's a spectacularly frustrating film. I used to show it at the film school, and you know, students would just be irate. The fuck is this? You know, and I say, no, I know. But forty years from now, you're going to thank me for showing it to you. Um, Killing of a Sacred Deer had elements of that. I mean, it was a, it was. I can't believe he he didn't have that in mind even um, when he made it. Um, in the same way, I think that's that, correct. Yeah. In the same way that I think the favorite, he probably cannot possibly have not seen um, the Rossellini Sun King Rise of Louis the Fourteenth, um, because in in one way it's a gloss on that, it's a commentary on that. He's an interesting director. I'm I'm coming to kind of you know makes makes interesting failures somehow um yeah his first film is the successful one that's was, a successful one yeah it's and one it's that wonderful. i saw the um yeah it's just not you know it's not overly deep but it's but it's very funny and it's extraordinarily um well made and and all of that anyway i th i think i think the thing you know about theater what was interesting in Deleuze and we probably should wrap up soon but the thing about that Deleuze essay and I'll I'll print um the name of the essay for on on um when when we get this up on SoundCloud this podcast um was the that Deleuze was drawing from all kinds of people that weren't even mentioned in the essay Artaud being one of course oh, of course um, and and uh, that 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 was very useful that he was doing that. I don't think he gets it all right because I don't think he's really a theater person, but it reminded me how important it is in theater. And this goes back to the repetition because we could talk a long time about all the, the you know, the, the echoes of, of the meaning of repetition in, in theater, in art, um, serialization, and in and in film, yeah, I mean, I guess the closest you come are endless takes, um, and you know, Ozu did the same thing. Lots of directors obsessively, you know, put actors through this torture. But 
Um, the point being that that it's not the story, it's not the set, it's not you know, it's um, it's the ritual, it's the ceremony um, of uh, you know the the repetition in Freud. You know, you keep repeating the same thing, the same trauma over and over and over. Um, and theater, in a sense, you know, we go into it in this strange self-analysis to repeat the same trauma over and over and over. And we're responding to a society of domination and irrationality in which people sort of zombie-like walk through their lives um, unaware. And, and theater makes, you know, the broad. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. Very uncomfortable for this reason. Well, so, it's very uh, interesting, John. Yeah, just to finish, it, it is that ritual thing. That oh, somehow sure. that has real importance that we should talk about more at some point. Yes, go on. <laughs> you let me know if, I mean, I don't know if we have time, but just no, to respond. Yes, you know, please. One of the interesting, one of the, one of the critiques or, or, you know, Deleuze's critique of Freud is very much that, you know, Freud basically took this, you know, this sort of Nietzsche and, you know, at one point Freud said something like, I had to stop reading Nietzsche because I had, I, I, I needed to get ideas of my own, he said. And, uh, you know, what, what essentially Deleuze's interpretation of Freud is that he takes this Nietzschean view of difference as primary to identity and he uh, basically finds a way through the Oedipal complex to relink the unconscious to identity and to unity, to the idea of unity. Uh, and that that's in a sense, so from a Deleuze and Guattari point of view, the whole structure of Freudian analysis is about essentially creating self-repressing Oedipal human beings who will do exactly what you described a while ago of self-repressing into quiescence. And, and that, you know, it's a very kind of um, subtle thing of, of a kind of commandeering of this very unsettling Nietzschean view of, of the human as essentially differential and uh, chaotic. Right. and linking it again to capital and production yeah, well, the now whether they're right or not that's the essence yeah and not to because that's brilliant and and um again repetitions are embedded in the experience of capitalism right i mean it, this is this was one of the yeah. insights of all the 40 in production yeah, right yeah the assembly line and that constant we are reproducing the the mechanistic um system of, of you know hyper reification that that we all exist under um yeah i think i think that's very good and and you know the sun you know that's a topic for the next podcast but that that fragile sense of identity um you know i think it may have been adorno but it may have been one of his may have been Mark Rousseau or Horkheimer or somebody, I don't know, talked about the, um, the self in, under this sort of instrumental thinking, this conceptual 
pre-experiential system paradigm for thinking that creates a like a cognitive deficit in people because they they won't allow themselves to experience all of of the world around them because it doesn't fit their paradigm um that 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 positivist um you know hyper rationalized self begins empty and has to be you know the the individual shops for uh what works best to fit his self his identity yeah, yeah i mean i well, that's very consistent with gerard too so. yeah yeah um okay listen i think probably we, i got a lot of sound glitches with you unfortunately this time but i not too bad i want to thank jack Lippman, um the uh the director star producer of rumble strip um his nifty uh micro budget sci-fi uh i want to thank guy zimmerman again um for being here and and uh tomorrow or the following day i will do part two with molly klein and michael petroselli and i'm hoping other people and then down the road and guy and i and others have spoken about this um we're going to be doing 30 minute hour long um dramatic readings of some kind um I don't know. I don't want to put a label on what they're going to be, but we're going to put them up in on the aesthetic resistance site, so people um, can look forward to that. I mean, maybe we'll all still be in quarantine, so this will be um, a very useful distraction for all of you. Um, so uh, I want to thank all those people. This uh, was really fun and uh, really useful and um, happy Easter to everybody. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know what like a quarantine Easter looks like, you know, don't get near the bunny cause it's, you know, fuck me, it's madness. Okay, thanks guy, thanks to everybody. And um, yeah. we're out.